We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real Steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. I don't believe that it's the responsibility of Major League Soccer or any professional league to help the national team. And this is where the current reality of MLS and Liga MX differ. MLS recognizes this reality in their existing and potential customers. You service the customer by knowing and catering to their habits, preferences, and biases. It's simply good business. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the responsibility of Major League Soccer to the U.S. men's national team. In our uh, Mossy Makes the Case segment, Mossy's going to be talking about the final 16 of the UEFA Champions League. In our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking about Carlos Vela and where he may or may not go. We'll be talking about the difference between a captain versus a leader and Motley Crue, Def Leppard, Poison, Joan Jet Stadium Tour. I'm very excited about that. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday morning? I am good. Can we get right to it? There's something that I know you want to ask me, so go ahead. Not a day goes by that I don't receive an exasperated text from you about The Sopranos, whether it's a character, an episode, a plot development that you find ridiculous. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like we've gone from underwhelmed to disappointed to this is the most overrated piece of garbage I've ever seen in my life. In this case, I will let you put words in my mouth, and I could not have said it better myself. Uh, as you know, we are talking about The Sopranos, which I finally finished last night in anticipation of today's show, because I know people are on the edge of their seat to find out what I have to say about The Sopranos. It is undoubtedly the most underwhelming, historical, epic type of, I guess it's a television show, can we call it a television show, that everybody watched. How it it, it translated and uh, dominated pop culture and the zeitgeist and all that kind of stuff is beyond me. I, I find this, I, I, I don't hate you, Mossy, uh, but I hate you collective that forced me with the years and years of Soprano this and Soprano that to watch this. And, you know, once I start watching, I'm going to finish it out of respect. And by the way, 
and that's not that I could write something like this. So it's not that they didn't spend time and then they didn't work on this. I just, it did not work for me. When it comes to the characters, there is nothing remotely appealing, inspiring, likable, and more importantly, because you can have villains, and you can have people that are un unlikable, and they can be really, really, and this is what's important, interesting. There is nothing interesting at all about this family. They are all disposable except for Meadow. I will, I will let Meadow live. In a series and in a show where everybody seems to die at some point, all right, they should have killed off the entire cast and let Meadow uh, live. She is the only one with any redeemable type of value or character or personality when it comes to the show. I have no sympathy for anyone in the entire family, the entire show. It didn't go anywhere for me. I wasn't waiting on the edge of my seat like some, uh, some people were each and every week. Maybe it was better week to week in dealing with that. But I tell you right now, I could not give it a worse grade than, uh, you know, a, I, I, I will give it, I'll give it a C minus. And that is being so incredibly uh, benevolent and and kind to what I feel is, in, in my estimation, the most overrated show in television history when it comes to these great shows. So there you go. That's my assessment of, uh, of what I had. You obviously disagree with me. I'm sure there are people out there right now that are having to pull their cars over or get to the side of the uh, pathway that they're running right now. Yeah, I mean, it's well documented that David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos, only wanted to do five seasons and 60-something episodes. And because of the success of the show, HBO convinced them to keep going. They ended up clocking in at 86 episodes. And I do think the story got stretched out at the end. I didn't like the later seasons as much. But the show had built up enough currency in the first three or four seasons that it's still considered a great show. Once we got through the first three or four seasons with you and you weren't liking it that much, I knew we were in trouble because it wasn't going to be the later <laughs> stuff. It wasn't going to be Vito right. and Johnny Cakes right. that won you over. So, I, I, and I will say this it, it, with respect to it. First couple of seasons, I'm okay with it. If it had stopped after the first couple of seasons, I was okay. And then it went completely off the rails, jumped the shark and all that kind of stuff. Although, with this caveat, and I know, and even if you haven't seen this, by the way, you recognize the fact that when these legendary shows come to the end, the, the series finale, the last show is always, you know, we've seen it with Cheers and we've seen it with Seinfeld and stuff like that. I will say that the final scene of Sopranos, I give an A+. I thought it was wonderful. It was understated, but it was, once again, for maybe the first time in a long time, there was actually something interesting. I thought it was artistic. I thought it was creative. And I thought it kind of fit with what the show at least intended to be when it started out. So I, I give that an A+, plus, but everything else, y y I'm not having it. I interpreted that final scene as being, uh, we were given a window into Tony's life for seven years, and now the window has closed. And don't expect any closure. This just happened to be a seven-year window that we were given, and we're all just going to have to wonder what became of his life after that. Is that how you interpreted it? Or did you sense any closure in the way that last scene played out? I... The reason why it was created, because in a strange way, you know, Seinfeld was always called a show about nothing. This was a show about nothing in that the people I didn't care about, the people were nothing. The people were unintelligent. The people were uninspiring. And as I said, they had absolutely no redeeming value. There was no point where I felt bad for any one of them at any moment, even through all the craziness that they, that they went through individually and collectively. No, I never felt empathy or sympathy towards any of them for any of the things that they were going through. I will say this is only your second most shocking pop culture take I've ever heard. You have one that I rank above this. Really? What's that? 
The fact that you don't find the airplane and naked gun movies yeah, funny not, at all. That's not funny at all. You find them to be completely overrated, right? No, I, yeah, I, I, I don't get it. Not that I don't get the jokes. I get the jokes, right. but there's nothing remotely... You don't get the appeal eh, of Frank Drebin. I know I'm being a little elitist and, and you know, uh, highbrow and stick you know, my nose up. And it's not that I don't like toilet humor and that I don't, you know, get a giggle out of the things here and there, but not that. Will you ever trust a television recommendation of mine again? Well, you last week you mentioned the the marvelous Mrs. Meisel or whatever is that what it's yeah, called? Yeah, Meisel. Meisel, Meisel, whatever. I'm not watching that. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough of this, Mossy. We got a lot of soccer to get to here, uh, and if people have tuned out, I apologize. But we just kind of wanted to put a bow on this and finish it up. My wife and my family are are happy that it is done. They don't care, really care if I liked it or not, but they are happy that I'm no longer binging it. I will say one last thing. I have a friend, Alex Safian, who uh, him and his lovely wife Jen, who celebrated her birthday last week, uh, have been binge watching Sopranos the last few weeks, almost sort of parallel to you in terms of where they were, and complete opposite reaction, nothing but positive, even better than I was told it was. They're loving it. So it goes to show you that different strokes for different folks. And, okay. And just I'll, I'll just say this. The whole dream sequence BS, okay, th that it took me out of it time and time again. There are dream sequences in cinema and in television that are appropriate, that augment what's going on. For me, the dream stuff completely took me out of, uh, of anything that even might have been something that I would have enjoyed. All right, moving on. You ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, as you know, each and every week we kick the bot off with... Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. Recently, Liga MX agreed to reduce the number of foreign players allowed and require more roster spots for Mexican homegrown players. Now this happened after current Mexican national team coach Tata Martino lobbied for the changes that he obviously believes will help his L3 cause. And it stands to reason. A domestic league providing more opportunity to national team eligible players, well it benefits a national team. And a good national team enhances credibility and can increase value of a domestic league. One hand washes the other and everyone wins, right? Well, not so fast my friends and amigos. I don't believe that it's the responsibility of Major League Soccer or any professional league to help the national team. If it happens, it's a byproduct, but it shouldn't be a requirement, especially at the expense of the business. And this is where the current reality of MLS and Liga MX differ. Unlike Liga MX in Mexico, MLS operates where soccer isn't king and where our unique cultural diversity means that soccer affinity, pride, and history is often attached to countries and cultures other than the US or Canada. So. It's no surprise that foreign talent is often seen as sexier and better than domestic talent. MLS recognizes this reality in their existing and potential customers. You service the customer by knowing and catering to their habits, preferences, and biases. It's simply good business. The allure and value of foreign talent in MLS is obvious, and it shows no sign of dissipating. Further restricting it would be bad business. Like any business, you have to give the people what they want, or the risk going out of business. All right, Mossy, there is my uh, State of the Union for today. Uh, a couple things when we think about the relationship between a federation and the predominant first division league, shall we say. Uh, you look, you know, we talk a lot about Brazil uh, and we can compare and contrast, for example, Germany, which famously years ago not only had one, but 
bolstered it and really came together with their federation and the Bundesliga. And we saw the results in terms of them winning the World Cup and the way that the Bundesliga was affected by it. However, you look at someone like Brazil that has always had a wonderful national team, but has not necessarily translated into the rise, shall we say, of the Brazilian first division when it comes to professionals. So what do you feel, first off, I guess my question is to you, is how much responsibility does a first division league, or any division league for, for, for that matter, professional league, have to the federation and therefore the, in this case, it would be the men's full national team? I mostly agree with you that they don't have that much of a responsibility. Now, the context here with Mexico is they've had tremendous success at the under-17 level. They've won two of the last eight under-17 World Cups, and they got to the final of this last one, lost to Brazil in a final in which they felt they got cheated, but I showed you the play, and you think stone-cold penalty, correct? Yep. But uh, this uh, run at under-17 level has coincided with a period in which the senior team keeps losing in the round of 16 of World Cups. So they're trying to figure out this disconnect between success at youth level and lack of success at senior level. And it's the frustration over the lack of success at senior level that's prompted this change. So to bring it back to the United States, as we know, after this last qualification failure, there was all this hand-wringing about uh, how soccer operates in this country. And MLS caught a lot of shrapnel, too. Right. I do wonder, God forbid, if the U.S. were to fail to qualify for another World Cup, right. do you think maybe that would uh, make you view the relationship between MLS and the national team differently? Or no, you're just philosophically opposed to MLS no, I'm changing? I'm philosophically opposed to it from a business perspective. And I know immediately when you mention business, people start going crazy. This is soccer. Well, I hate to break it to you, but uh, it, it is a business. Now, keep in mind, too, that the relationship between Major League Soccer and the United States Soccer Federation is long, and they have been in bed together from a business perspective for many, many years. So there already is a standing existing relationship. What we're talking about here, though, is a recognition that they need to change, alter, tweak the rules in order to what ultimately would benefit uh, the national team by giving more opportunity to play. And I, I am against that. And I've said this time and time again, if I'm an MLS owner, I may feel that my responsibility is to help the national team. And look, no MLS owner is going to come out and say it's not. But I am saying if I'm an MLS owner, it doesn't need to be that your responsibility. If you want to play with 11 players that have no U.S. men's national team eligibility, have it. If, you, if that's what you feel is appropriate for your market, because you know it better than anybody else, and for your customer, and that's how you think you're going to survive, then you should be, uh, you should be allowed to do this. Now, look, I know that, once again, that relationship, the World Cup in 1994, part of the stipulation was that we would have you know, a, a league, and that's, what, that, that's how MLS got formed. So there was always this relationship, symbiotic at times, between the Federation and, uh, and, and what happened. I do recognize that we are once again in a unique position with 2026 upon us. And so Tata Martino going in and recognizing that there is this ramp up to 2026, and I know his responsibility, obviously, first, first and foremost is, is 2022, but I think there's this recognition that come 2026, all guns need to be blazing. And so you need to do everything in your power, and everybody kind of needs to circle the wagons and help out as much as possible. And I think that there was a pride, a nationalistic type of feel to this type of uh, this type of move. But also, as I said, in the State of the Union, it's a little apples and oranges in terms of the business environment and the actual cultures when you're comparing Liga MX and therefore Mexico and Major League Soccer, which entails the United States and Canada. 
Yeah, in England, this was a red-hot issue, but it's subsided in the last couple of years precisely because the national team has done well. They got to the semifinals of the last World Cup, so now there's a feeling that, no, we have the best of both worlds here. And there is this argument you hear that domestic players actually benefit by the arrival of these high-priced foreigners the greater because competition, yeah. greater competition, they have to earn their spots rather than having it handed to them. Do you buy that? I do, and I think American players, and I say American players, it doesn't necessarily, I mean, but let's say, uh, U.S. men's national team eligible players if given the opportunity. And therefore, it's, you know, it's not just players that have played. It's players that could potentially play. If given the opportunity, they will win out and they will find ways to have spots and to get, and, and to get playing time. And once again, mandating, and this goes back to what I said of what we perceive as quality and what we see as sexy. And the unique aspect of our country, and in MLS's case, it's countries with U.S. and Canada. You know, I mentioned the historic cultural attachments that we have to countries, and you know, whether it's Brazil for you or Greece for me, and that lends itself to saying, well, you know, that's what quality is because that's that's what you think. And it's not even that. There's also people that aren't soccer people because soccer isn't the number one sport. They will look at anything that's not American as automatically being better because. They, they don't know. And if it's not a sport that you grew up with, if it's not a sport that you know through and through, it's not a sport that has been a part of your, uh, your history and upbringing, you're going to defer. And we defer constantly. Both people that know the game and people that don't know the game oftentimes uh, defer. So it's no surprise to me that MLS recognizes that their future is attached to, uh, to players coming in from the outside. And by the way, this doesn't only apply to players that aren't American, okay? There are players right now, and I've said this time and time again, the quickest way to increase your value as an American player is to get on a plane at LAX or JFK or anywhere in between, fly to Europe, run around Heathrow or, or where, wherever it is, Charles de Gaulle for a couple of uh, minutes, get back on the plane, and when you come back, your value will, will be increased and the perception of your ability will, will be increased. That's just the world that we live in. So I get why. And that's a little bit different when it comes to Mexico. It's not they don't have foreign players in Mexico. They have, they have plenty of them. But I think that there is a, a pride and a willingness to accept domestic talent as equal or in many cases better they're much more liable to do that in Mexico than they are in the United States and Canada. Now, Tata Martino is somebody that a lot of people wanted the U.S. to hire, right. and they family, famously discarded him because he didn't speak English that well. He's pushed for this change in Mexico and got it. I know it's a hypothetical, but had he become the U.S. coach, do you think he would have recognized that this is not possible with MLS, or he would have pushed for it as well? And do you think he would have had the juice to get some sort of rule change implemented? I think that he would have had a better perspective on it in that he would have recognized that the success that he had in two years in Atlanta came at the hands or the feet of the imported talent that he was able to get. Now, if he believed that there was equal or better talent that existed in the United States, then obviously he could, he could uh, but you know, once, once again, it's, it's a catch-22. Unless you do it, you're not going to give the opportunity. But if you give the opportunity, you're, hurt, you're, you're, you're hurting the business. So I, I do believe that if Tata Martino had been the coach of the United States uh, men's national team, that he would have sat down with the powers that be that are Major League Soccer and U.S. Soccer and tried to, and tried to do this. I would have disagreed uh, at that time. And maybe, you know, maybe in doing that or not doing that, you hurt the chances of your national team. And I, I don't want to do that. But once again, I look at them as very, very different. I know the connections that have existed in the past and, and still exist and the relationship 
But I look at Major League Soccer as I look at USL or any league out there as a completely a separate entity to make their own business choices. And if they're constantly having to make choices for the greater good, then I think that you can hurt the business. I'm not saying that it's not good and altruistic and, and I would love people to do that, but I don't want to mandate it and force it. And I do think club results matter as well. So mm -hmm. the change in Mexico is right now you're allowed to have up to nine non-homegrown players on your 18-man match day squad, and you can have up to 12 non-homegrown players in your overall squad. And those numbers are going to gradually decrease They're gonna phase it, uh, in, the, yeah. in the next few years, and we'll see what they ultimately settle on. But let's say by not bringing in these high-priced foreigners, the quality of these Mexican teams declines to the point where they're losing to MLS clubs in CCL, and I think they're going to eventually get back in the Libertadores. They're not playing in it right now, but and they perform poorly in that competition. I think there's going to be some pushback the other way because to bring back England again, you know, some people in England complain about English players uh, not getting enough of a chance, but they also love the prestige of the Premier League. They also love having the best players in the world there. They love having English clubs win the Champions League, and so that's always, you know, you, you sort of can't have it both ways. And so I think if England ever instituted a, a rule where the, the, it was the quality of the Premier League was declining, there'd be some pushback the other sure. way. But it also goes back to what we talked about when it comes to youth development. I don't care. About, I, it's not that I don't care about youth development. I don't want to watch youth develop. As I've said many times, I, I want the final product. It doesn't excite me to, to extrapolate it out or to see the potential, which is what we do. And to sell it to somebody, because that's what you're doing. If the perception is, whether it's reality or not, if the perception is in Mexico that the talent has decreased, the excitements of the games have decreased, even if they're not, even if they're just scoring as many goals and even if the games are fine, but even if the perception is that because of this phasing in and change, Liga MX has suffered and through the actual 90 minutes that are played or ultimately that score, especially when it's up against MLS, you bet you people are going to be angry. They're going to say, "This is why am I paying to watch this development? Or why am I now paying for an inferior product because of the restrictions that you've put on the teams? That's not what I want. And that, that will be a problem. I think it was going to happen. I mean, eventually an MLS team is going to win and be the champions of CONCACAF. But that doesn't necessarily mean that MLS what we'll say is MLS has finally arrived. MLS is the best league in CONCACAF based on that. But it doesn't necessarily mean it. It just means that, that those games and those moments that at times have been right on the precipice finally swung on the, uh, in the way of Major League Soccer. So I don't know. Well, I think the, the 2026 World Cup point you made is interesting because in this country, when we think of the 2026 World Cup, we only think of the, of the United States, but right. you forget Mexico is hosting matches as well. And they view the U.S. as sort of like their second yes. country. So that 2026 World Cup is sort of a big target date for Mexico as well. So, yeah, you have to keep that in mind. I, I think that, look, I, I think that the decisions that are being made now at the United States Soccer Federation, we talk about Carlos Cordero and the leadership over there or lack of leadership, depending on how you look at it. I think there is a lot that is looked at as this ramp way up to 2026. Even Greg Berhalter, while his job obviously is to qualify the men's national team and do well in 2022, there is a, a long-term type of thinking and approach because everybody knows how important 2026 is going to, uh, going to be in terms of propelling forward and continuing to propel forward the image of American soccer. And therefore, a lot of that manifests in the actual team that goes on the field. We saw that in 1999. We saw that in 1994 uh, for the men's team, for the women's team. It's such an important uh, point that we have a World Cup in between there sometimes gets lost in this in this long term thinking. But it will be, you know, it'll be interesting. But uh, ultimately, 
I don't think that MLS is going to do something like this. And I don't think that they would do something like this because of the things that I talked about in the, in the State of the Union. It has gone so far down the line right now where not only do they encourage it, but they manipulate even the way that money is spent. And I know that's a whole other subject, but the way that money is spent, it is designed to encourage the influx of foreign talent because MLS as a league recognizes its value and the individual ownerships and groups recognize it. What's the first thing that Miami does when they're talking about players? It's not talking about signing a homegrown player or signing, you know, with all due respect to Lee Wynn or whoever pulling him out. That's not what they're getting their fan base excited about. It's signing a big international star. It's signing a big international name. And even smaller teams, smaller market teams that are coming in, there's still the recognition. It's not, are you going to sign this great young player out of wherever uh, domestic uh, league or school that, that, that they are at. It's about who's the big name that you are going to bring in with that cachet and that attachment of an international uh, resume. And it might be an American who has that international resume who's playing over there. But once again, that international cachet that comes back, it is incredibly sexy. It is incredibly valuable. And I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. All right, moving on. Hey guys, Alexa here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out. Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more. All on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's all ad-free. And you can cancel at any time. So check out FoxSoccerMatchPass.com and get started with this free seven-day trial today. Now back to the show. Mossy makes the case. Okay, it's time uh, once again for Mossy makes the case. Mossy, what are you casing for this week? My case is that if you come at the king, you best not miss. The Champions League round of 16 is set. The draw took place earlier today, and it threw up several enticing matchups, particularly involving the Premier League clubs. The biggest storyline in this competition is England looking to cement what it did last season, while the rest of Europe is hoping to knock the Premier League off its perch. Last season, the Premier League had the most dominant campaign that any domestic league has ever had in Europe, featuring an all-English Champions League and an all-English Europa League final. And La Liga, which had dominated European football for the previous seven or eight years, was left licking its wounds. There's been a lot of talk in Spain this season about reclaiming their belt, and they get a shot right away to knock out England's big two. Real Madrid will face Manchester City, while Atletico Madrid take on Liverpool. Meanwhile, the Bundesliga, which also has a complex about the Premier League, gets a shot at revenge. You might recall last season in the round of 16, there were three Premier League Bundesliga matchups, and England won them all. Liverpool beat Bayern Munich. Tottenham took out Dortmund, while Manchester City eliminated Schalke. Well, this season we have Chelsea, Bayern Munich, and Tottenham, Leipzig. If the Spanish and German clubs can do a number on the Premier League, it would mean last season was an aberration rather than a sign that the rest of Europe needs to curl up in the fetal position. But if the Premier League comes out of this round unscathed with three or four teams advancing and looking strong, it could mean we're headed for a repeat of last season and that we are really entering an era of Premier League domination in this competition. I can't wait to see what happens. I've spoken before about how much I love the knockout stage of the Champions League, and this season promises to be incredible. Wow. Okay. Now, there was a big if in the middle of there, and rightfully so, because we obviously don't know what's going to happen. But if the English teams uh, go through. Now, when you saw what came out early, did you, by the way, did you get up uh, in, in the morning? 
I did. You are. You are. So, <laughs> you are amazing. You are, what time was that? Three o'clock in the morning or something? I woke up at three thirty in the morning. The draw was. I love you. I love you. Oh, goodness. Well, thank you for doing that for all of us, me and everyone that's listening right now. Thank you for uh, for doing that. It uh, it shows <laughs> who and what you are. Uh, but I love it. OK, so if is there anything here that gives you pause with regards to the the English team? I know there's some wonderful matchups here, but do you which one is most likely not to go through here? I want to read them out. Uh, well, first so everybody all, knows. So because uh, uh, I don't think everybody uh, knows all of them, right? Atletico, Liverpool, Atalanta, Valencia, Chelsea, Bayern, Lyon, Juventus, Dortmund, PSG, Tottenham, Leipzig, Napoli, Barcelona, and Real Madrid, Man City. So Liverpool, Atletico, Madrid. First of all, uh, I always like to include this caveat. We're sitting here in mid-December talking about games that are going to occur in February and March. Right. So right. there could be managerial changes. Sure. Teams could make moves in January. Uh, there could be injuries. We don't know what kind of form these teams are going to be in. So these they are, may look very different on are, and off the field. These are initial thoughts that are subject to change when we get closer to these matches. But as <laughs> Wait, we sit here it's today. deposition over here, yes. my man. You know, I'm not asking as we you to sit sign here today, here. Yeah, I mean, we can go through each of these one by one. I mean, as far as Atletico Madrid and Liverpool, Atletico have made an effort to play more expansively this season, but it's been undermined by their inability to score goals. They have only 18 goals in 17 La Liga games, which is why they've been linked with Edinson Cavani in January. The other issue is Diego Simeone, in my opinion, has done a terrible job with Juan Felix. I thought that might be an awkward fit. Simeone has many great virtues as a coach, but dealing with a young, talented flair player is not really in his wheelhouse. He's played him out of position now wide. He's subbed him out of too many games. And the end result is, although he's shown flat because he's such a talented player. Felix has not been this incredibly impactful force. So if we get to February and March and they're still not scoring goals and Felix is still in this kind of stop-start mode, they have no chance against Liverpool. If we get to February and March and they're scoring goals and Felix is flying, then I think they are dangerous because they're still a tough nut to crack at the back. Although they've lost guys like Godin and Juan Fran and Felipe Luiz, uh, Trippier and Henan Lodge have slotted in fine at fullback. Felipe playing well in the middle. They still have Jimenez and Savic, Oblak and goal. So there's still a lot to like about that team. Uh, so we'll see what happens. No, but you don't matter. see it. Today Liverpool or in February doesn't matter. The not happening. Real Madrid, Manchester City one. I'm seeing a lot of varied opinions about that. Uh, there are people, including Rory Smith, who right. I respect a lot, who think people are getting caught up by the allure of Real Madrid and overrating how difficult to draw this is. City's clearly the better team. They should go through. I don't agree. I think if you if you look at this Real Madrid su- team superficially this season, you see the results. Nothing really jumps out at you. But I, I think they've played really well the last few weeks. The pieces are coming together. Before this injury, Hazard was really trending in the right direction. I could sense them growing in confidence. You still got a lot of Champions League winners and World Cup winners in that squad, while City have never shown the backbone to win this kind of tie in Europe. So I actually think this is a terrible draw for Manchester City to have to face Real Madrid. What do you think? Yeah, I think they lose. I think Real Madrid beats uh, Man City. And then... Chelsea Bayern, which is one our friend Alex Dowd will have an eye on. Yes. Again, two teams that uh, Chelsea, they just had the transfer ban lifted. There's a real sense that they want to get back into the transfer game here. I've I've read that they have a 150 million euro war chest and and they got to make up for lost time since they didn't do anything in the summer. And meanwhile, Bayern, we don't know about the coaching situation, whether they're going to bring in a new coach in January. So who the heck knows? But as we sit here today, I clearly think Bayern advances here. Chelsea, it's a nice story. I love what they're building for the future, but I don't think they're ready yet to make some real noise in the Ready. Ready for prime time. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. Bayern continue trending in the right direction. Lewandowski scoring goals, so they I might like have a new Bayern. coach by then. And yeah, it's 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 like you said, it's hard with the two month right, thing. Right. I mean, you know, Man City, if they were to if they were to uh, go out and get 
defenders, great defenders or center backs and stuff like that would change the entire uh, equation. But yeah, so go on. Uh, and then Tottenham else? Leipzig, yeah. which, you know, we cover the Bundesliga, so sure. we know how good this Leipzig team is. I think this is, in terms of the quality of the squads, it's probably about a 50-50, but Tottenham did get to the final last season. They have Mourinho. Do you think just based on experience, you give a slight edge Tottenham or no? This Leipzig team is is looking not just good, but better than last year. Uh, I think more confident. I think there's an understanding of how they want to play. I think they're licking their chops. And I don't think that Tottenham, regardless of the manager um, that they were under, last year they they found themselves to the final. They weren't a good team, but they found themselves in the final. Well done. Uh, and this year, I think they can be better under Mourinho, but I still don't think that they have enough. I think that I do agree that it's 50-50. You can put it with easy, easy, but I'll still put it on RB Leipzig. Uh, who plays first? Uh, Tottenham, yeah, because they, they come back to Leipzig, too. This is important, too, for the, Correct. the second leg. So they yes. come back. So Leipzig has the advantage, if it is an advantage, of, of, of coming back to uh, And let me Germany. just say, there are some delicious coaching matchups in this round. You've got Klopp against Simeone, Pep against Zidane, and Nagelsmann against Mourinho. Yep. Pep Zidane is interesting to me because those two guys have really ushered in this era. There's really an ex-player fetish right now, and it's very in vogue to hire as your manager a guy that was an ex-player at your club. It's the reason why Arsenal are actually looking at somebody like Mikel Arteta more than Carlo Ancelotti right now. And I, I attribute that to Pep and Zidane. I think more than anybody else, those two over the last decade have sort of ushered in this era. Do you agree? But I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I understand the... Uh, the awe and the, once again, the sexiness of it. And having a, a long history and an understanding of what the club is, it, it's, it's easy to say that. How does that manifest? Like what, what does a, play, or a, a former player that comes into the club do differently than somebody else? It's not as if you're going to play with 12. It's not, you know, so it's, it's little things. Sometimes things you can't even necessarily define that are the reason why that you do this. I do think it's at times made out to be more than it actually is in terms of hiring somebody who's been there. But an understanding, I think it comes down to you're not a mercenary in that situation. And when you're, not a, when you're a mercenary, it, there is not something deep inside of you that is driving you that is pressuring you, that is pushing you to, to do things. And I think a lot of people, they idealize that type of person leading them, someone where it's not just about the money, it's not just about the next big opportunity, it's not just about that you're coaching at a, at a huge super club. It's about you understand what it has taken in the past to succeed, and therefore somehow you will now understand more so than somebody else. Even, even at times, somebody else who is, you know, infinitely more qualified than you may be at the time. You mentioned Dortmund PSG. That's yeah. another interesting one because that's Thomas Tuchel against this former team. No love lost there. He left yeah. Dortmund in a very bad way. Uh, really fun tie. A lot of attacking stars involved in that one. I think there's a different feel about this PSG team this season. I love having Kaylor Navas in goal for a big Champions League game. Uh, what's your sense of PSG Dortmund? Dortmund, well, last couple of weeks they've been they've been good, and I think they've found their way a little bit. I still don't see them as as strong as they have been in the past. They are playing, and everyone's playing on two fronts. Certainly Dortmund relative to PSG is going to have a much harder type of week-in and week-out environment that they are playing, and especially with all the different folks in the Bundesliga that are challenging right now. It's not just between them and Bayern. So I agree with you that, I mean, I agree with you in the, um, the respect 
and the newfound respect that you're putting uh, PSG, I think PSG will go through. They play back in uh, in Paris for the second leg. Correct. Yeah. The only complete mismatch I see in this round is Lyon-Juventus, where I can't make any case no. for Lyon winning that tie. Even Barcelona-Napoli. Uh, Napoli are talented enough, and Barcelona have looked shaky enough that I give Napoli a puncher's chance, although I'd like them a lot better if it was Carlo Ancelotti on the bench rather than Gennaro Gattuso. That's a conversation for another day. Um, <laughs> Don't get Mossy started on Gattuso. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and, and by the way, one larger point. This is the first time ever that all 16 teams have come from the top five leagues in Europe, which has led to a lot of consternation from folks who are worried about the top heaviness of it's European it's football. the Super League everyone's Remember, talking about, right? Remember, uh, when the last uh, television deal was negotiated, the top leagues were able to use the threat of a Super League to wrangle more automatic spots into the group stage. And so a lot of people are saying this is the natural consequence of that, and we're going to increasingly have to get used to this. It's funny, like what passes for a Cinderella team now, Atalanta, who are because of their shoes string budget and the way they operate, but they finished third in Serie A last season. In past years, that would have been having to go to the playoff round, which Italian clubs have struggled in, but instead, because uh, Serie A was able to use its clout to get more automatic spots in the group stage, Atlanta goes straight into the group stage. So even a Cinderella story, there's actually a bit of a, like, you know, top heaviness behind but, but it. But who's, who's not <laughs> look, who's looking at this and going, ah, we really need more Cinderellas. Ah, uh, this is just... Well, I mean, are really people really doing that? I mean, it's, it's different than you know, the basketball, March Madness, it's different, where if you didn't have those Cinderella's, I think overall the thing would suffer. I don't think this is suffering from the lack of Cinderella stories here. There's an argument that having more European countries involved is a good thing. A lot of people point to Ajax last season. That was a fun run, having a team like that. And so not having an Ajax, a Porto, a Benfica, a Galatasaray, a Shakhtar. People aren't going to not watch it because the fact that Ajax isn't in it or, or a team from pick your, you know, a Greek team or a Bulgarian team or whatever the hell it is. Right. The other, the other team I've heard some people tout is like a Cinderella of sorts is Leipzig. Uh, try telling people in Germany that Leipzig <laughs> are a Cinderella story. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Uh, this starts up when, Mossy? February. Mid-February. February, February yeah. first. So we still got some time. And as we said, there's going to be, there will be for sure, changes, whether it's coaching changes or player changes. It could change the, the dynamic of these matchups here uh, because of the, the makeup of these actual teams. Some will stand pat, and therefore it stands, and others we know in January are going to either panic or recognize some real bargains out there and go figure out uh, ways to do that. All right, Mossy, anything else? Nope, that's it. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's that time again. Uh, Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the uh, social media platforms, and uh, we take a few of those questions, comments, concerns, and we read them off each and every week, as we are about to do right now. Mossy, what do the people want to know? First up, at FA Silver 11, if Carlos Vela goes to Barcelona, whose spot in the lineup would he take? And when he doesn't get into the lineup, will you finally take him out of your <laughs> top 20 players in the world list? Let me just say, very snarky tone to that tweet. I don't know who this F.A. Silva is, but that that's just, there's no way to, no well, reason to know, talk to people like that. Out there on the internet, uh, you can be anonymous and you can yes. say, you know, snarky and mean things out there without any fear of retribution because no one would ever, you know, call you out or come to your doorstep or anything like that. I don't think that's that, that snarky. It's completely fair from F.A. Silva 11 in that he or she is referring to the fact when I put Carlos Vela in my top 20 players list to the dismay, consternation, surprise, all of that uh, of many out there. Uh, so the rumors, and this is not a new rumor. This has kind of been kicking up for a while now. You want to explain to the people what's going on here with regards to Carlos Vela? Yeah, Barcelona had been linked with Vela in the past. He had some good years at Real Sociedad sure. and La Liga. 
And Jonathan Los Santos came out recently and said that Barcelona are interested in him again. Now, the Spanish media claims there's nothing to it, so who knows. But let's say these rumors are true. Carlos Vela goes to Barcelona, and how well would he fit in there? We've got a front three but right what's now. What's the three? What's the three? Give it to Messi, us. Messi, Suarez, and Griezmann. Okay. Why don't you... Okay. say that so, Vela uh, would take Messi's spot. That could be your well, trolling it's... Mona Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, left footers, they're all the same, right? I mean, it's just a, it's like a swap for swap. No, I mean, if you look at that, oh, speaking of left footers, uh, you know, Vela at times has played up top. I, I don't see him, first off, coming in and starting, but if you were to say which place he would take, it would be a Griezmann type of uh, situation. He would change because of the. T- he's a very different type of player. He would change the way that they play. I do think that someone like Messi, in in a strange way, not a strange way. Shouldn't, this shouldn't be. This shouldn't be a crazy thing to say. I think he actually matches up better with a Carlos Vela type of player than he does with a Griezmann type of player. I don't see because Carlos Vela has at time played in that in that center uh, forward, I guess, position, oftentimes in a much more false nine type of position. I don't see him going in for Luis Suarez. And it might just be a situation where Carlos Vela is a, a nice sub to have at a certain point if you want to bring on somebody who can slice and dice. It also, with, with Messi getting up there, and I know he doesn't like to get taken off the field, he doesn't like to not play, but if you are someone that is concerned with resting one of the greatest players ever to play the game and you're fighting on multiple fronts and with a bigger picture of a, of a Champions League uh, type of situation, it's a nice type of, it's not like for like, don't, don't put words in my mouth, but it is a pretty valuable type of proposition to be able to put in a Carlos Vela if that were to, if that were to happen. I'm still not sure despite what was it Jonathan Dos Santos or uh, Gio Dos Santos said this? I thought it was Jonathan. One of the Dos Santai said it down uh, said it down there. So it's got to be true, right? But I still don't necessarily think that this is going to come to pass. And on a serious note, uh, we've been talking about this. There's an interesting conversation to be had about how you contextualize what players do in different leagues. A club like Barcelona, if they were thinking of signing Carlos Vela, I do wonder how they view what Vela did in MLS. Uh, last year and how they gauge his current form and whether he's worth signing, how much money is worth spending on him. You know, it'd be interesting to sort of have a ear into those meetings and decide how they, they look at his MLS numbers and how, how they sort of contextualize that with bringing him back to La Liga. But to, uh, what's her name again? Is it him or he or she? F.A. Silva, uh, just to your other question here, if he doesn't get into the lineup, you finally take him out of your top, top 20 players in the world. Well, what if Mane or Mo Salah got transferred to Barcelona? Now, they'd have to take out somebody, right? Who would they take out? And what if they can't take it out? Would you not have them in your top 20? So just because somebody doesn't replace a someone in the top three up there of Barcelona of Messi, uh, Luis Suarez, and Griezmann does not mean that they can't be in the top 20. Well, the irony here is you putting Vela in your top 20 was a way to push back against Euro snobbery. Uh, if Vela were to go to Barcelona and win a starting position, that would sort of validate your argument, but you couldn't necessarily go that route because acting like a player starting for Barcelona, oh, that validates that he's a top 20 player. That would sort of cut against the larger point that you're trying to make no, against Euro snobbery. It would be normal. <laughs> obviously, he's one of the great players in the world today, and he's gone to Barcelona, and he's a starter. All right, what else? Here we go. Next up, at Savannah, Ajar? Any thoughts on Mourinho's comments about captains slash leaders? Oh, give, give a little context to this so the folks out there understand what we're talking about here. 
Yeah, Mourinho had an interview recently where he spoke about how he values leadership and that not all captains are necessarily right. great leaders and that you don't necessarily have to be a captain to be a great leader. And he went through his career and different players he's worked with that he considers to be great leaders. And you found the comments interesting. No, I thought it, I thought it was really interesting. I, I ended up nodding my head and, agreed, and agreeing with his uh, peek behind the curtain, if you will, of both how he approaches the captaincy and how he views players for much more value than simply how they kick a ball. I would add another category, because so we said uh, leaders, captains, and stars. Uh, and they are, they are all at times very different. Some can overlap at different times. If you got all three, <laughs> then you're, you're, you're golden, but oftentimes that isn't, that isn't the case. The ability to be a leader oftentimes has very little to do with the piece of fabric that is, uh, that is on your arm. We put a tremendous amount of weight, and different cultures put different amount of weight to the, the captain out there. But I just thought it was interesting to hear him, and he even used some examples from his past of when players who weren't necessarily captains or players uh, who weren't necessarily looked at from the outside as leaders led him, uh, led his teams. And it what ultimately was interesting for me was it freed him up to do what he needed to do. So he looked at, you know, he gave an example of a moment where he needed to motivate his team. And obviously we talk about, usually that happens at halftime. It's hard to do it during the game. And yet that responsibility was taken over by what he would look at as a leader. Times it might be the captain, might, times it might be somebody else. But how valuable that was to him because it was one less thing that he had to worry about in terms of motivating players. And he recognized that there's a different type of motivation and therefore a different type of reaction to that action when the coach is doing it as opposed to one of your peers. And that evaluation from somebody else, that oftentimes has much more and a much more dramatic and, and immediate impact than it does when it's coming from a coach. And a coach, while he'll, he or she may do that, if that's taken off their plate and they don't have to worry about that, then they can get down in a very limited amount of time, especially in a halftime, to dealing with the situation at hand and doing the X's and O's and figuring out exactly what they are, uh, what they are going to do. So I just, if, if you get a chance to read the, the quotes, they're not, they're not particularly long, but I just think it was an interesting peek, the, peek behind the curtain at what we still look at as one of the great managers out there and the psychology of managing players. In this case, it's, it's soccer players, but it, I think it would apply to any sport out there of, as you look out at your team, who you see as your leaders, who of those, or maybe not of those, you decide to give the captain's band, how that motivates that individual person, but then the other leadership moments and abilities that show up uh, for players that aren't captains. And there's some captains that don't do that or do it in a different way. There's some that are given the captain's band simply because the management recognizes that that is something that that person needs. And it's just fascinating, the psychology that goes into to athletes and to a team. Not just a team of athletes, but it could be a team of anybody out there. All right, what else, Mossy? At Bodie underscore Reagan, who should headline, Def Leppard or Motley Crue? Will you show up for Poison and Joan Jett? Ooh, oh, I love this question. Uh, Mossy, do you know who any of these, uh, these are groups, these are uh, musical groups that they're talking about here? Have you ever heard of any uh, of these? Yes, I've heard of all of them. Motley Crue is Tommy Lee. Hmm? Yeah, that would be one person in. Uh, so for, for those that haven't heard, and probably a lot out there that maybe haven't or don't care to hear, but Def Leppard, Motley Crue, Poison, and Joan Jett are embarking on a stadium tour. 
Uh, why is this important? Eh, I don't know. I guess it's not important in the greater scheme of things, but to me it's important being an aficionado of this type of music. Motley Crue retired uh, six, seven years ago, so they're coming back out of retirement uh, to uh, do this tour. Def Leppard's been touring for a while. Poison's been touring for, for a while, as has Jet, uh, Joan Jett. Uh, this is a stadium tour. This isn't small little sheds. This isn't little arenas. This is a full-on stadium tour for bands that certainly had their heyday back uh, in the 80s and maybe a little bit of the uh, the 90s. So from a business perspective, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of business uh, they do. I will be there. To your question, Bodie, Def Leppard should headline. Def Leppard is a more globally recognized and, from a numbers perspective, successful band than Motley Crue. I think what will probably end up happening is they'll go back and forth, Motley Crue. Since Motley Crue's coming out of uh, retirement, there'll be a curiosity as to what they look and sound like. They might headline at different points in different places, but I think Def Leppard should be the headliner, then Motley Crue, Poison, and Joan Jett. That would be uh, that would be the order. I will be there for every single band. I love all of them. This is a jukebox type of scenario where they'll be able to play hit after hit after hit, and since there's limited time that they'll be allowed to be on stage. It'll be only hits, uh, which is fine by me. So it'll be a wonderful night. I cannot wait. I've already looked at tickets. They're, they're going to make some money. They're certainly going to make some money off of me, and they are already very, very expensive. So I will be, I will be not only checking them out, but I'll be checking them out probably at multiple stops uh, on this tour. I cannot uh, wait for something like that. Mossy, maybe we'll go together. We'll take, we'll, we'll take everybody. Well, maybe we'll go on a State of the Union trip. Shall we, shall we say, you know, what do you, what do you call it in school when you go field trip, field trip? There we go. We'll go on a state of the union field trip to see this. I'm down. You're down. Yeah. Do they say down anymore? When I say they, I mean people, human beings out there. Does anybody say I'm down with it anymore? No, I don't think so. All right. Either way, we're going to check that out. All right. Anything else uh, from Ask Alexi there, Mossy? No, that is it. That's it. All right. Uh, use that hashtag out there, whether you're asking me about uh, 80s metal bands or anything else uh, out there, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or anything else out there. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and like we just did, each week we'll pick out three of them and uh, read them off on the air, and you may be one of the lucky ones. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for our uh, back three, some big stories, games, moments. Uh, update, by the way, on the pod, we've been given the go-ahead and the thumbs up when it comes to the folks out there. Luis, our resident millennial, I guess it would be, or at least hipster cool guy, has said that uh, people do say what? What was it? We I'm said? down. I'm down. They still say I'm down. So we're good with that, at least for a few more years. Mossy, what is in our back three this week? We have a Clásico this week. On okay. Wednesday, it will be Barcelona hosting Real Madrid. This match was supposed to occur earlier in the season, but it was postponed because of security fears given the protests going on in mm. Barcelona. Barcelona and Real Madrid enter this match level on points at the top of the table, which is a welcome change because Barcelona have run away with La Liga the last two seasons. They finished 19 points above Real Madrid last season, 17 the season before. This season, it looks like we could get an epic title race between those two clubs. Let me start out with a larger question. Yeah. Do you think this game has lost any luster because it's no longer Messi against Ronaldo. Neither team won the Champions League last season. We're living in a Premier League world. If Liverpool were facing Manchester City at the exact same time as Barcelona Real Madrid, which would be the bigger global spectacle? Oof. If Liverpool were facing Manchester City, I do think that the attachment over the last, I mean, how, how many years it has been of Messi to Barcelona and Cristiano to Real Madrid has elevated. What is already going to be 
something that I would tune in for, but it is elevated to a whole other level. So the loss of Cristiano Ronaldo, I do think takes something away from it. But I'm, you know, I'm st it's not that I'm not going to watch it, but I think that those two clubs over the last decade or so, so often and so well attached themselves to those two individuals that it superseded just the general importance of the of what the Classico is. And so, yeah, I think it has lost a little something, at least for me. For you? Uh, no, I still love it. Um, I've long said I think this is the greatest rivalry in all of sports. It has that social element, the fact it's that less than 100 ahead. years ago, uh, there was a civil war in Spain in which Barcelona tried to secede. And there are many people in Barcelona right now who still don't consider themselves part of Spain and would prefer to be independent. Uh, and then from a strictly footballing standpoint, the stars that have been involved in this rivalry through the years is just mind boggling. If you made a list of the 100 greatest soccer players of all time, like 50 of them have been central figures in this rivalry through the years. Obviously, everybody from the Stefano to Cruyff to Maradona to Zidane to Messi to Cristiano Ronaldo all the way down. So uh, I, I always look forward to watching these two teams play. I think this season they are very evenly matched. I actually think Real Madrid are the slightly better team. Um, really? But, okay. you know, Barcelona do have Messi, who's worth on his own X amount of points over the well. course of the season. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they're home in this game, Messi's in great form, and Hazard is out. He will miss this game with an injury. I would actually give a slight edge to Barcelona on the day. So I, I think if there is a winner in this game, it would most likely be Barcelona. It wouldn't surprise me if it's a draw. So looking forward to it. I mean, in terms of lineups from the midfield up, Barcelona, I suspect it'll be Busquets, De Jong and Rakitic, who's worked his way back into the 11. And then, as we mentioned before, Messi, Suarez, and Griezmann. Uh, Real Madrid, I think he will play 4-4-2. So it would be Casemiro, Cruz, Valverde, and one of uh, Modric or Isco. And then up front, I think it will be Benzema. And I suspect Bale. I don't think he trusts either of those young Brazilians, Rodrigo or Vinicius Jr., to start a game like this. So believe it or not, Gareth Bale will get a chance. Well, maybe Bale should think. go to Real Madrid instead. <laughs> <laughs> Um, seems to be an opportunity there for yeah. somebody. Both teams coming off uh, tough games, by the way. Uh, Barcelona drew 2-2 away to Sociedad, and Real Madrid drew 1-1 away to Valencia. There's a very good second tier in Spain this season, the likes of Sociedad, Sevilla, Valencia, who are playing well. Even Atletico, depending on what side of the bed you wake up, they're either the worst of the first tier or the best of the second tier. But so uh, those clubs, I just meant they have no fear of Barcelona and Real Madrid. So the fact that they had to play those teams in the weekend right before this game, it meant they couldn't let up at all. They couldn't rest. Uh, they had to expend a lot of energy just to get draws in those games. Uh, the Real Madrid-Valencia one was incredible. I don't know if you saw Courtois coming up for the corner. But so both teams drawing meant they're still level on points going into this game, which I love. And so I cannot wait. Barcelona against Real Madrid on Wednesday. Well, despite the Continued absence of Cristiano. I still will watch it too. It still, it still Excellent. lures me in, but yes. not as much as it has in the past. I'm just saying. Fair enough. Fair just enough. Saying. All right. What else? Next up, U.S. Soccer has named its men's and women's player of the year. Mm -hmm. uh, Christian Pulisic won for the men, uh, narrowly edging narrowly, out Jordan yes, Morris. Yes. And then Julie Ertz won for the women. Uh, we can take this one by one. Okay, um, let's one by one. Uh, so let's do the men first. Okay. We talked about this. This was going to be an interesting call between Pulisic and Jordan Morris. And look, we framed it as sort of a referendum on how much value you give to a player in MLS versus Europe. Jordan Morris right. led the Sounders to MLS Cup, but Pulisic doing what he's done for Chelsea, becoming the first bona fide American star at a big, big European club. 
And so, you know, you, this being an American award, you kind of sided with Morris. You'd like to see them reward the guy who did it in MLS. I will say, even if you remove the club stuff, there's an argument to be made for Pulisic in this regard. Uh, with, with apologies to the Nations League, the one real tournament the U.S. played in 2019 was the Gold Cup. Mm -hmm. And Pulisic was clearly better than Jordan Morris in that. So, Why? Well, I mean, Morris didn't score a goal, was, was, was kind of a bit player. Pulisic, goals, assists. So what do you make of this Pulisic narrowly edging so out? So I guess, more? so where does the elevation of someone's perception of a player end? So, for example, if, if I don't know, if Jossi Zardes was not starting, but on the bench of, what's your best team in the world? B Barcelona right now. Would that be something enough where you could say he would be better than Jordan Morris? Yeah, a lot of people would. Really? The, the mere fact that he was deemed worthy for Barcelona to sign and that he is occupying a squad place on a team of that caliber. I, a lot look, of I'm not saying that. that I, I'm not. I'm yeah, not, no, no. I'm, I'm just, the cachet is obvious, and I understand. It's, it's Barcelona, a very interesting by the way, debate. both teams, we can go back and we can talk about players that have not been very good that have been <laughs> on the roster at a certain point when it comes to Barcelona, Real Madrid, the elites uh, of the world out there. So, But just being on it, obviously, it's it's a wonderful thing to have on your resume. So, yeah, okay, all right. We're not going to go down this rabbit hole right now. But when it, you know, I, I recognize that the fact that Christian Pulisic is, even at the time he wasn't playing, but certainly over the last month, not only playing, but starring a, and featuring in a Chelsea team that we know is not a Barcelona team. It's a Chelsea team. Don't worry over there. Alex is going crazy over there. But, it, I mean, everybody, you have to admit, it's not what it once was. Having said that, he's starting the Premier League. He's starting on Chelsea, a worldwide type of brand. And so that, I think, got him over the hump when it came to Jordan Morris, which is fine. Look, there is no criteria. Unless you're going to give us actual criteria, and there are, there's criteria that you have to have played in whatever game and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's a subjective type of thing. And when people see, they, their eyes get big. We've talked a lot about what's sexy for people out there. Well, I get it. It's much sexier to someone when you have someone playing in the EPL and playing for Chelsea and then you have someone playing in Major League Soccer and playing for Seattle, with all due respect to uh, Seattle out there. I get it. I get it. I find the women's one so interesting yep. because Megan Rapino won all the uh, global awards. She was the Golden Ball winner at the World Cup. She won the Ballon d'Or. She won the FIFA Best Award. And the generous interpretation of that is that they factored in just her significance to women's uh, soccer and all she's mm -hmm. done to fight gender discrimination. Uh, a less generous uh, interpretation of that is that uh, when know. it comes to the women, they just think of it more lazily, and she's just the big name that they've kept hearing about. And so they've everybody sort of bought into this notion that she had a better World Cup than she did. And when it came time for U.S. soccer to pick their player of the year, where well, they actually put some footballing thought into it, Julie Ertz won instead. Is that how your interpretation of how that went? Spot on, my friend. You have, <laughs> you have, you have nailed it. If you went back to the people that voted for this, the, you know, the global type of awards, and you asked them to talk to you about how her club season went— and so they would, first off, I don't think they could name who she played for or let alone the fact that she didn't play a, a whole lot of games. Uh, so I think that there's just, and, and this, and once again, this is just the reality of, of where this, these awards are, where women's soccer is relative to the world. And it's certainly gotten better. And 
in large part due to our U.S. national team and including people like Julie Ertz and people like Megan Rapinoe for what they what they have done. But that's just the reality. This is this is the, the constant chipping away for credibility and for understanding and for greater exposure and relevancy and all that all, all that kind of stuff. And so I think that was reflected in in this vote. I had said that I would have voted for Julie Ertz. She ended up winning, getting 42 percent of the vote. But I will say this. While I may take in at times for the vote the impact that someone has from the actual kicking the ball, it's not only about that. And what Megan Rapino has done, whether I agree with things she says and does, is, is irrelevant. The impact that she has had and therefore the way that she has used that platform and impact to help not just herself and her brand, but either directly or indirectly, the sport of soccer, and in particular the women's uh, the women's game, it's it's undeniable, and there is incredible value to that, and that should be recognized. And so I can almost to to a certain degree respect and understand why that can be valued in. I don't think that a lot of people knew about the other stuff, but there might be some that did and still said, you know what? But what Megan Rapinoe has done is so far, so far overshadows and outsizes anything anybody did in terms of kicking the ball, in terms of the impact that somebody makes, that that should be recognized. And I think that, from, for some people, I think did, did factor in. And I can actually make a case for that when it comes uh, to Megan Rapinoe. But congratulations to Julie Ertz. Hey, congratulations to Megan Rapinoe. Believe me, she's not suffering <laughs> without this award. She's got, uh, she's got had a, a hell of a 2019. It is the year of Megan Rapinoe uh, on the cover of Sports Illustrated. She Sports, was the uh, Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year. And Sports Illustrated did go out of their way to say it was not just because of what she sure. did on the field, but also her overall significance. So, uh, they're off the hook as far as any but it, any. It does put others at a disadvantage. That those that just want to kick a ball or shoot a basket or slap a puck or throw a ball or do whatever, if that's not part of your your brand, shall we say, if that's not who you are, either you just don't feel it's appropriate or you're not comfortable doing it. Why should you be put at a disadvantage by that when it comes when it comes to these awards? I mean, these are these are open-ended questions. I I I don't know. Like I said, I I get why that that has happened, and that they came out and said that it was she was more than just the, the actual kicking the ball, because the fact is, if you just looked at the kicking the ball, I think it would be hard oftentimes to have her come out the winner. But you combine the two, and you. And look, she's not, not for nothing, but she did she did win the World Cup when it comes to Megan Rapinoe, so it's not too shabby. But had a man done the exact same thing in the World Cup, but not had that catalog of a year worth of soccer where constantly they were in the eye and doing well, do you think that that would have? Uh, you think that the same thing would hap- would have happened? You're saying if there wasn't this whole social. If a, if a man had had the World Cup that Megan Rapino had, but didn't have the other bona fides when it came to the club situation. Oh, no. 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 But no. if a there, man had also been the figure and the personality that Megan Rapino yeah. is, that would have helped. Uh, yeah, I mean, helped. in 2002, Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, won the Ballon d'Or in a year where he was injured, barely played at club level. He won it all based on the World Cup. But... The difference there is Ronaldo actually did have an incredible World Cup. He scored eight goals, scored two in the final against Germany. So then it became this sort of philosophical debate about, about club versus country and in the World Cup year, how much value do you attach to the World Cup, et cetera. With Megan Rapinoe, there's another layer to it that 
those of us who were there and watched it don't even think she had that great of a right. World Cup. That it's been a, it's a little bit right. of a perception trumping reality sure. deal. So yeah, with what she did at club level, which is non-existent, and then the fact that she wasn't even in our view the best U.S. player at the World Cup, it makes it a very difficult yeah. case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? She's like I said. She's she's going to have a wonderful festive period, shall we say, celebrating a, a wonderful year. And and all credit to her. She does, she deserves all the uh, the attention that she is getting and the accolades. And well done. Congratulations to, you know, to all of them, including Julie, uh, Julie Ertz and the entire women's national team for what they have done on and off the field throughout 2019. We'll see if they can continue it on in 2020. What else, Mossy? And we'll end on this. Uh, as we approach the midway point of the European club season, Alex Dowd, Thought it would. Who, by the way, has since walked out because of your Chelsea comment. But uh, <laughs> it's not the first time. Yes, he thought it would be useful to just whip through the top leagues and kind of do oh, a, okay. see where we are. Right, I know you've, you've printed out the standings. Yes, uh, he has. He's a good uh, producer. So good producer. why don't we begin with what I think we both agree is the best league in Europe, the Premier League. <laughs> okay. Um, All right. Uh, listen, I, I I went into the season thinking Liverpool were definitely going to win it, and obviously nothing that's happened so far has dissuaded me. They are. 10 points clear of Leicester, and more importantly, in my view, in, in terms of the title race, 14 points clear of Manchester City. So I think it's Liverpool all the way. It's done. So on Monday, December 16th, it's done and dusted yes. when it comes to the EPL. I did ask... Maybe uh, even before. I did it could ask have been done a couple of weeks ago. Uh, our colleague and Liverpool superfan, Zach Kenworthy, on December 21st, Manchester City hosts Leicester. If there had to be a winner in that game, who would you want it to be? And he said, without hesitation, Leicester meaning he still fears Manchester City more than Leicester, and he wants to put City completely to bed. He's not worried about Leicester winning right now. Oh, and he's just sitting up there with a smoke and a coffee, just throwing out points. They've, they've, they banked so many. It's, ah, we'll give them, we'll give them some points there, because we know we're still going to win it anyway. Yeah. God, just uh, now, I will say, when it comes to him there's, and, and Keith Costigan over there, those Liverpool yes, guys. Yes, Leicester have opened up a 13-point gap between themselves in fifth place. So I think they're pretty solidly in the top four, and then we all think Liverpool and City will clearly finish in the top four. So that just leaves one spot left for Chelsea, United, Tottenham, with Mourinho and Arsenal all to fight over. Only one of those teams, I think, will finish in the top four. Uh, three will finish out. That's uh, pretty fascinating, no? It is. Uh, and that's where the excitement, let's be honest, that's where the excitement yes. is going to be when it comes to the EPL. This is... To, to Grant Wall's point, uh, it's it's done, right? Although <laughs> he thought City was <laughs> all right, the but team you know, what, you know, it's uh... well, that's a conversation for another day. I mean, that, <laughs> I, I, like I said, I defended Grant. I thought he was raising a fair point about the top heaviness of European football, but he ended up picking a weird season to do it because sure. that's what we're going to okay. go through. Actually, right. uh, it, it is funny, by the way. Liverpool, the Premier League, is very proud of being the most competitive of all the top leagues, and they are in the sense that they have the most different champions. Liverpool, who we think is going to win this year, will be the fifth different champion yeah, in eight yeah. years. While Bayern have won seven in a row, Juve have won eight in a row, PSG have won six the last seven. So that's true. But it's just funny how this season, I think the Premier League is going to have no title race. While as we as we see, some of the other leagues are actually right. going to have very compelling right. title races. So it is a it is a pity that there isn't going to be a title race. And so you yeah. you shift your your focus to all right, the race for that top four and and you know will Chelsea stay in it? Will Manchester United come in? Obviously Tottenham with uh, Mourinho. Okay, what else? Bundesliga, Bundesliga right? next, which is the league we cover. Yep. Uh, this has been, in the five years that we've had the Bundesliga, this is the most fun I've ever had following this league. I yep. think it's been an incredible first half of the season so far. Bayern right now are fifth. They're six points out of first place. Yep. 
listen, they're clearly capable of winning it. And if I had to bet my life on it, I still would bet on them to win it. But I don't think they're good enough to just blow past everybody. So this is going to go down to the wire. It's going to be a dogfight. Last season, we had Bayern and Dortmund in this sort of eyeball to eyeball race right until the last round. This season, I think we could even have three or four teams battling for it. Are you buying that, that you think this is going to be that well, much fun? Well, to your point about picking Bayern, and look, it's it's not out of the realm of poss- not out of the realm, possibly you're not crazy for doing that. I even asked Thomas Haltman, I said, don't, don't vote with... He's a lifelong fan. I said, don't vote with your heart. But if I took all of your money and we went to Vegas right now, who would you put it on to win? And he said, I'd still say Bayern. Because it's so ingrained that that, that that can happen and has happened in the past and certainly could happen here. You know, having said that, we were talking about Gladbach uh, this weekend and that moment when it's not going to happen. And this, this strange effect that the winter break has on teams, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. It is, it is wonderful uh, right now. I think it actually is, well, it's great for the league. It's great for us covering it. I think it's great for Bayern Munich because it once again puts them in this situation where they have to perform. Now, do they stick with Hansi Flick as a, as a coach? Do they make a change uh, right now? Because right now they are just in Europa, okay? At the beginning of the weekend, they weren't even in Europa. They were in seventh. If they at any point in the next month feel that finishing top four and therefore finishing in Champions League is in jeopardy, they got to they got to make sure that they have that coach ready to go. They can't wait for the summer. They got to do it. They got to do it now. But I mean, it's going to be a race to the end. I can't. I cannot wait. Leipzig right now. I think I said the other day on air that when it really comes down to it, it's going to be. Between, it's not going to be between Gladbach and Dortmund or anybody else. It's going to be between Leipzig and Bayern Munich. I agree. Gladbach, they have a terrific coach in Marco Rosa, and they have, they're have they very, very well organized. I don't think they have quite enough talent. Dortmund, I'm still seduced by their talent. I think man for man, they might have the, the best squad on paper, but I don't like Lucien Favre, and I think they're very dysfunctional. Leipzig have the best marriage of talent and a top coach and Nagelsmann and just seem very organized, and everybody knows their role, and there's sort of a good feeling about and that still squad. still talent to... to uh, to spare. I mean, Tyler Adams, I know he's American, so we talk about him, but he hasn't even, he hasn't even played. He's been out, so he's going to come back. So they're going to have even more depth and more uh, talent to put on the field. So I, I, I agree with you. If one of those teams between Le- Leipzig, Gladbach, and Dortmund, if it became a, a race between one of those teams and Bayern, I would bet on Leipzig being that team. Okay. Next up, Serie A, which, as I mentioned, Juventus has won eight in a row. They're going for nine. This season, they have a real challenger in Antonio Conti's Inter Milan. They are level on points right now, and, and I, I buy it. I think Inter is going to hang in with them the whole season. We're going to have a real eyeball-to-eyeball race here. I do think, ultimately, if I was a betting man, I would bet on Juventus. Uh, Keep in mind, Conti has been complaining the whole first half of the season that he doesn't have enough depth. And so they, they are going to be uh, Inter Milan, one of the active teams in January, uh, looking to add some squad depth. They did crash out of the uh, Champions League in, in disappointing fashion. I know there's a idea out there that that's going to help them in the league because it's less games. They're, they're not going to take the Europa League that seriously. But I, I just think losing to a Barcelona team that didn't have Messi that rested a lot of their starters kind of showed that Inter aren't ready for prime time. I think if, if you're going to buy into the notion that they're going to pip Juventus in a title race, you have to believe that they're going to be able to win big games under pressure. And losing that match day six game at home to Barcelona kind of put a little doubt in my head if, if Inter are really ready for prime time. How do you see it? I think they are ready for prime time, and therefore I think we are going to have a race. But I think when it really comes down to it, I still think that Juventus is going to have the ability, the talent, obviously the experience been there uh, to just pip him at the end. Yeah, Inter, by the way, do have one of my favorite players in world football right now, Lautaro Martinez, uh, young Argentinian striker. I think he is fantastic. It hurts him you to, Lukaku to say one. that about an Argentinian, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it's funny. They, I say, you know, they're lacking depth. They do have a Brazilian striker on their books who scored 40-something goals in all competitions this year, and they're not even considering bringing him on board in Gabigol, who would, you know, obviously wouldn't start, but you never know. Could If they brought him on, could perhaps emerge as a super sub of sorts, uh, but they don't seem to be going that route. Moving forward, uh, La Liga, which we just talked about. Yep. Uh, Barcelona and Real Madrid are level on points. Uh, they square it's off be between on them. Wednesday. It's, it's going to be go between down to them. Yeah, yep. Atletico's not involved to, yep, to yep. the extent that they don't have the thing. So between the two, who do you, uh, you earlier in the pod, you said you like Real Madrid better than Barcelona. Yeah, huh? but I tell you but, the, the messy factor. I think Real Madrid have the slightly better team, right. but I think the messy factor. If if I had to bet my life on it, I think I'd still bet on Barcelona really? to win La Liga. Because all right, well I'm going to go with the team because I believe in team. Masi, yes. you're just all about the individual. Like Bo Schembeck, so, like exactly. You in team. Like a <laughs> Bo Schembeck. Yes. All right, so um, I'll go with Real Madrid, and then and then Liga? finally Liga. I don't like to pat myself on the back, but I did predict PSG were going to win the Liga <laughs> this year, and here they are in first place. Uh, the one story that's kind of interesting is. Marseille are second. They're playing very well. Our good friend Andre Villas-Boas, who took over for Rudy Garcia this season, having a little bit of a rejuvenation there. Dimitri Payet playing great. Garcia, by the way, is now in charge of Lyon, trying to clean up clean up Silvino's mess. And, you know, I... I in studying French, I've now listened to a lot of French television shows. And, you know, they've been struggling to grapple with the monolith that is PSG. And they, they're still trying to cling to the notion that PSG and Marseille, that's kind of their Real Madrid-Barcelona. And they want to cling to the notion that there's still a big rivalry there. Yeah. And obviously, when they meet head-to-head, you, that sort of disproves that because PSG always win. But the fact that they're one and two, if Marseille can stay even within touching distance of them throughout the season. I know folks in France would get a big kick out of that to at least be able to convince themselves that there's something of a PSG-Marseille title race, but it's... No, touching, di- touching, in- di- <laughs> touching distance is not going to do it. You need to be, like, increasing distance, yes. all right, in order to even have a, a chance. Can I make one last point about the first half of this European club season? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. That's a wonderful way to end our, uh, our back three on. There I think go. we will look back at 2019 as the year where Jurgen Klopp emerged as the most prominent figure in world football to the point that if Barcelona were to fire Ernesto Valverde tomorrow, call up Liverpool and say, hey, let's make a swap. If you let us have Jurgen Klopp, we'll give you Messi. I think a majority of Liverpool fans would say no to that, a Klopp versus Messi swap. I think that's how much they revere Klopp and everything he's done in his four years since he's taken over Liverpool. We're sitting here today on the day of the Champions League knockout stage draw, and I can tell you from reading all these newspapers around the world, Liverpool was the one team everybody was petrified to face. They've gotten to the final the last two years. They won it last year. They are now widely considered clearly the best team in Europe, and that's all down to him because if you look back to where they were when he took over four years ago and where they are today, okay, it is incredible. Okay, you like Klopp. I get it. Okay, but are you saying that this just applies to Liverpool if the Liverpudlians, what are they? I guess they're Liverpool fans, whatever. Scousers. If you ask them, they, if they could either have Messi or continue with Klopp, you're saying that they would take Klopp. Yes. Okay. So does that apply to anybody? So anybody out there, either you have Messi or you get Klopp to coach your team. Is there anybody out there that Probably doesn't do that? Probably everybody else would take Messi. <laughs> really? But Liverpool, they've had the experience of having Klopp. They, they, so, you know, they're... But at least it, it, we're even having this conversation is a, a, a tribute to who, how, not how far Klopp, well, I guess how far Klopp has come, but the importance that you attach to what Liverpool is and has become under him and how important it is to keep him going forward. And this will be my last comment. Liverpool right now, a reminder, contesting the Club World Cup. They have touched down in Qatar. Okay. Uh, this week we have the semifinals. Flamengo will take on Al-Hilal. 
which is Sebastian Jovinko's team. Yep. And Liverpool will take on Monterey. And then uh, the winners will face off in the weekend in the final. Where uh, could one see these games, Melissa? Uh, the two semifinals are on FS2. Okay. The final, it's, it's uh, live on Fox Deportes, and then we're airing it uh, on delay on FS1. So okay. you, you've kind of led me into talking about something that Fox is a little bit, you know, squirmish about. You well, know? you get to see it. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you get to see it. All right. Well, uh, check all of that out. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Mossy. As, uh, as usual, we come to the uh, end of yet another pod. And at the end, uh, we do our one big thing from uh, the day's podcast. And uh, it goes back to what we talked in the uh, State of the Union about, about the responsibility that a league, in this case, we were talking about Major League Soccer and comparing it to uh, Liga MX. And oftentimes when I talk about soccer and when I talk about sports, it's relative to the business. And at times people cringe when I when I, not everybody, but at times people cringe when I say it. You, you can't have one without the other. They are always connected. But when I do talk about the business of soccer, it's not because I don't have a passion for it. It's not because it's not personal to me. It's not that I don't see the beauty and the romance that exists out there, whether it's on the field in a beautiful player, a beautiful team, a beautiful game, or whether it's off the field in terms of the culture and the passion and the excitement and the uh, family, if you will, that exists out there. But none of this that we love in the form that we love it, I'm not talking about the game just in general, but none of this in the form that we love it at the highest levels exists without an understanding that the business uh, has to be there. Notwithstanding the, <laughs> the incredibly rich folks that at times use the game as a, as a plaything. Uh, when I talk about sports, I always put it and have the business component as part of the assessment and part of the conversation uh, uh, that we are having. And when I see what MLS going into its 25th year has become, and I think back to the early days, way back in the 1900s when we started it, there was a recognition at the time that MLS was to be used as a vehicle and as an opportunity to help, um, in that case, it was American soccer before Canada came in. And nowadays it would be to help Canadian and U.S. soccer. And I think that it has, that it has done it in many ways, including providing opportunities that didn't exist back when I was uh, coming up and there was that Wild West type of existence of professional leagues and more opportunities. And I do think that that can be something that a league can value and can look to, uh, to implement. But as I said in the State of the Union, not at the expense of the league. And so doing things, whether it's mandating time or roster spots to U.S. men's national team eligible players, or any type of restriction that is going to hurt the business, either the individual businesses within the bigger business that, that MLS, simply to make yourself feel better or to make yourself look good or to, I don't know, virtue signal, whatever it ends up, ends up being, uh, or out of some misguided type of national responsibility that you feel. And if that hurts the business, and you can argue that it, that it can hurt the business, I think that that's a problem. And it's okay. It's okay to say that, in this case, MLS, it could be any other league, 
they need to do what's right for their business and they should do what's right uh, for their business. And I ultimately believe in the American player and I believe in the domestic player. And I believe that even with limited opportunities or more limited opportunities, they will find ways to rise above. And to your point, Mossy, earlier when you were talking about England, we have a case study where uh, even at a time when they're at an all-time low of opportunities for English players, British players, Yet, when you look at England as a national team, uh, they have never been at a higher level in terms of confidence, in terms of individual quality out there. And maybe it's not all because of what the EPL has become, but you got to look at the fact that all these players, uh, for the majority part, are playing in the EPL. And, you know, we'll see if this changes. We'll see if at a point a Tata Martino-esque person walks into the offices and sits, sits down and says, hey, we need to do this, and how it ultimately affects a national team or how it ultimately affects either positively or negatively a business, which is ultimately what uh, this is all about. On that happy note, I tell you uh, thanks. I tell you uh, for, thanks for listening, watching, as you have done all year. This will be our last full live episode, live in that we were recording live here. Uh, but we will have episodes that we have banked over the next two weeks. Right, Alex? So keep your feet up. You will have plenty of content out there uh, that we have done or we will be doing here in the next week. Uh, Mossy, what do you have planned for the holidays? I am headed to Fort Lauderdale. Uh, my parents have a place down there. I will be spending Christmas and New Year's with them. Oh, wonderful. A warm Florida Christmas for, uh, for you. I will be spending it with my family uh, also in that neck of the woods. So uh, have a wonderful, wonderful uh, Christmas, uh, Mossy. Uh, and to all of our folks out there, have a great holiday. I hope you're with family and friends. I hope it's a happy and a healthy holiday and New Year. And as I said, Keep your feet up because there will be, not feet, your feed up to date because we will have shows over the next uh, couple of weeks. Thank you very much for listening today and watching today. And we will see and talk to you next week just in the form of a banked show. All right. Size the day. <laughs>